Hey, this is Raw Talk Podcast. I'm Jabir. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is the incredibly accomplished and longtime fan of the show, Dr. Richard Horner, professor of medicine and physiology at the University of Toronto, a Canada research chair, and author of the book, The Universal Pastime, Sleep and Rest Explained. In our conversation, we talk about why we and other living things sleep, how breathing can fail during sleep, and what an anesthetist really means when they say, I'm going to put you to sleep. In between discussions about his book, Richard also tells us how the interaction of life and interest brought him to Toronto and the value of clinical training while doing basic science research. All right, enough from me. Let's hear from Richard. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into sleep research? What made you decide on this field in particular? Uh, well, I'd always been interested in sleep as a high school student. I'd read about sleep. Uh, it's just one of those things I always found fascinating. I also did a lot of it when I was a kid and as a student. <laughs> so I guess it's always been in the back of my mind. I'm not sure it was something I had planned to be a researcher in, but that kind of developed over time. So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Sheffield. And at that time, it was known for gastrointestinal research, like really preeminent, and that really did have my interest. But my other interest still at that point was sleep. Mm. And it just so happened that an opportunity arose at the University of London as a PhD student. And the reason I applied there, there was a very unique position. So sleep science and sleep medicine was very new at that point. It was really developed in large part in Europe and places in North America too. But in London, they were developing and setting up the first sleep lab. So what made it really interesting was there was an opportunity to do some solid physiology. I'm a physiologist by background. And at the same time, that very well-equipped lab was set up to be the only sleep laboratory in London at the time. The labs group was the only one in West London. So what made it special was half of my time was spent doing clinical evaluations. As physiologists, we would set up the lab during the day. There'd be night staff come in, and at that time it was a night nurse who set up the patient, and we would come in as PhD students in the morning and interpret the data mm-hmm. and write a clinical report. So as a scientist and as a physiologist, that was fantastic. Yeah. And then the professor of medicine, Abe Guz, he would read and sign off on the reports. And we did that one week out of two. So full week of research, and then second week, it was a clinical lab. So as a training, it was absolutely fantastic. As clinical training, how did that inform your research then? And if you're doing that at the same time? Yeah, so as a PhD student and then as a postdoc and now as a faculty member, I've always been in clinical departments okay. as a PhD scientist. I'm very comfortable dealing with clinical issues, talking about clinical issues, and it always informs the work that I do as a basic scientist is always in view of Mm. what it may mean clinically. So we do solid basic science, but it's always with a view to how it might be handled clinically. Was there a moment or was there a realization that, you know what, this is for me, I want to become a scientist, I want to do this as a career, because you always had this interest in sleep and physiology, as you talked about. But were there any kind of clues, any kind of conversations or reflections that you think today and say, yeah, I remember the day or the time I decided this is going to be what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, well, I hate to disappoint you, but no. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> there wasn't. That It was an evolution, Okay. for sure. Um, I love the workings of the body, and I love biology. That were my two choices, whether to okay. be a physiologist or a biologist, because evolution is my other really serious scientific interest. So the physiology side won. There was an aha moment with the books I'd read. So The Body in Question by Miller was a real eye-opener for me in terms of really being interested in the the biology of physiology of the human body and its workings. That was actually a a real decision-maker for me. So my decision then was biology or physiology slash medicine, and that really pushed me to choose physiology rather than medicine. It was very instrumental in my thought process. But at that point, it was more to the issue that I was really wanted to understand. Okay. The idea of research, if you'd asked me as an undergrad, I probably didn't know what that meant, in fairness. Uh, I think there's more of an emphasis on research in modern-day curriculum, which I think is great. But really, it was a process of wanting to be involved in high-level understanding of physiology as it applied to biology and medicine. And 
so at that time, it was more the, I guess, the educational element that I was kind of focused on because that was more of what I was aware of. And I still mm -hmm. have a real passion for understanding and educating because yeah. I like to be educated myself. And I yeah. think if you want to teach, you need to understand it yourself. But then uh, as the more I went into research as a PhD student, the place I worked at, which was the um, Charing Cross and Westminster Medical School in the UK, was a hotbed of really good people doing great research and interacting in a really collegial way and what really struck me and it's kept with me since was it didn't matter that someone was the professor of medicine a senior scientist a postdoc mm -hmm. it was irrelevant all that was relevant is the kind of work people do how they could communicate it the ideas people had so it was a real meritocracy and yeah. that really has stuck with me and i guess i really enjoyed that side of things but how did you find yourself in toronto uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did a postdoc in Toronto. I did. Went to Penn. Yeah. And then you came back to Toronto. Yeah. Can you talk about, you know, what was happening there? Yeah, so that's a, that's a classic example, in my case, of the interaction of life and interest. Okay. So I did my PhD. I really, as a passion, wanted to live somewhere else, travel the world. And as a scientist, it's difficult to take a year out. So to combine an interest in living in another country and learning from another country, I would really had to do that in conjunction with some science. Mm -hmm. So my PhD supervisor, Abe Guz, who died unfortunately a few years ago and was celebrated by the Physiological Society in London for all his contributions, he knew Elliot Phillipson, who was the chair of medicine at the time. And I was interested in going a number of places. And Abe said, Richard, if you're really serious about pursuing sleep, go to the best place there is, and that worked with Elliot Phillipson at the University of Toronto. So it just so happened that there was a meeting in, um, in Jerusalem, actually that year, where I met, I presented and met Elliot Phillipson. And then after that, there was the first meeting ever of the British Sleep Society in Edinburgh, which I also went to and presented at and met Elliot there. And then he came down to London. So after those two meetings, I showed him my research and he invited me over to Toronto. And that's how I came. So okay. it was the intersection of an interest to travel and the opportunism and connections that people have to make the most of it. And you told the story about how... You know, you were also advised if you wanted to come back, it'd be good to get some training elsewhere. Yeah, so that applied twice because before I left, I mentioned to Abe Guz that I was really interested in pursuing my career and what the opportunities were in London. And he gave me some really sage advice was he said, Richard, if you're really interested in coming back, the best thing I can suggest to you is to leave and to then come back. So... That was valuable, and I applied it, actually, because after my postdoc here with Elliot Phillipson, who I mentioned was the chair of medicine, he offered me a faculty position at that point. Uh, but I really knew, after those three years I spent with him, what I really wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And the techniques, the gap in the field, which was the neuroscience, the neurobiology of sleep as it applied to breathing problems. The field of neurobiology of sleep is very, very strong, really high-end neuroscience, but it had never been, a, the same principles and techniques and that sort of thing had never been applied to my field. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to develop that, and so I knew what I needed to do. I had two offers at that point. One That's a lot of self-awareness to be able to recognize that. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure what to say to that, but uh, at that point... And also humility, because like you're getting offered a faculty position, you realize, you know, there's still more that I would like to know. Well, there was another reason which I can get back to, which was, again, a personal reason. But um, So I knew what we needed to do, and Australia and Philadelphia were on the cards, and as attractive as Australia was and is, this is Sydney... The best place, the best choice by far was Philadelphia. And it turned out to be fantastic academically as well as personally. I still have a lot of friends. Went to New York over the holidays and met up with some friends from Philadelphia who came up. So, you know, it worked well. But the other reason was in the three years I spent here, in my postdoc years, I met my now wife. We've been married, actually, 25 years is our anniversary this year. And um, congratulations. Thank you. So the thinking was, well, it'd be a good idea for her to understand what it's like to live away from your own country, whatever, if we did the same together. Oh. So we went down for three years, and it was fantastic because she got some great connections that she still has used to develop her own career from that. But secondly, from a personal perspective, when you live in a new place, you do interesting things all the time. So the mundane things you might do on a weekend, you put them in the middle of the week, and you do interesting things on the weekend. <laughs> you travel around... 
you know, visit different places, the city you're in, whatever. And in her job, she was traveling around the States a lot. Mm -hmm. So we would just go places every weekend. It was fantastic. So it was good academically, and it was a really good thing personally. And then to come back, the value was I came back fresh, and I didn't transition into a job from a postdoc where you're often seen differently. For sure. Last question before we get to the specifics of your research. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you had touched upon it in a bit, like when you said how important education is to you and how... You know, to be educated, then you also have to educate others. So I wanted to ask you about your philosophy of teaching and mentorship, because it's very clear that, you know, you spend a lot of time, you're very dedicated. Why is teaching and mentoring so important to you? Uh, Probably because I experienced good teaching and mentorship myself, Mm -hmm. and I appreciated it. I also appreciated the freedom I was given. So when I started my research, actually, I was did some work that was interesting, but it wasn't my passion. So I discussed that with my supervisor, who was very willing to redirect the area of work, which was fantastic. So I've always been open to pursuing things that are important. Uh, Having a high bar is appropriate to the kind of work and trying to achieve that, but also in a way that's collegial, that's very important to me, and allowing interaction and it doesn't matter whether the person I'm interacting with and discussing things with is an undergraduate, a graduate student, a senior faculty member. What's more important is the ideas. Mm-hmm. So I guess all those things. But the main one is that I try to have an environment that I liked, and that is freedom to explore with some feedback that's constructive, but with also a high bar. But it's really the the emphasis on independence and a certain mindset that it's okay to be independent and it's okay to ask for assistance, questions, or reassurance where necessary. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I like to do is to have discussions with the students, really work with them. Everyone's different. There's always a stake in the project and the student should have a stake and I don't like telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. I like to kind of mold the project together and that might vary in terms of input of the student between students, but it's always encouraged. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And listened to. Yeah. Well, let's get to the research now. Um, So you've done a lot of work on what's called obstructive sleep apnea, which you just talked about. Mm -hmm. But before we get into your research and your findings, can we just go over the basics of breathing, you know, during sleep And does it at all differ from when we're awake? Yeah, so the work we do in general has kind of three major themes, mechanisms of sleep, mechanisms of sedation, and mechanisms of anesthesia. Mm -hmm. The work we're most known for, as, as you said, was obstructive sleep apnea. So obstructive sleep apnea, as its name implies, is an absence of breathing apnea during sleep, and it's caused by an upper airway obstruction, which is behind the tongue. And that never happens in wakefulness. All our muscles relax when we go from wakefulness to sleep, and that includes the muscles of the upper airway. Okay. And what makes that region quite important is because the region that we're talking about is the airspace behind the tongue. So it's the only region of the breathing system that's not supported by rigid cartilage like the trachea and the bronchi. It's really the tube surrounded by muscle, and that tube has to be flexible because that's how we eat, we drink, and we talk. So it has to be able to open and close, and it's surrounded by muscle. And so when those muscles relax and we lie on our backs, there's a tendency for the airway to narrow, and in some people it shuts because the tongue is the only muscle in the body that's attached at one point, interestingly enough. And when that muscle relaxes, it can fall back in the throat. That's a big problem with anesthesia. That's why people get intubated. And in most people, they're okay when they're asleep too. But certain anatomical changes that some people have, small chin, big tongue, thick neck, maybe heavy individual, maybe drunk some alcohol or whatever, maybe sleeping in a position that moves the uh, jaw in a place that narrows the airway. There comes a time when people, young or old, are vulnerable to that airway shutting, and that's in sleep. And it happens quite a lot, especially as more and more people are getting heavier. There's more and more weight of the tongue and of the neck, so it's an ever-increasing problem. Okay. It's a serious problem. Yeah. And reading your last paper on potential drug targets for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea, and again, the thing that struck me was that there aren't any at the moment in the market current viable pharmacological targets. And one of the things you mentioned or you provided 
three strategies to move this field forward. And I was hoping you can kind of tell us about that. The fact that there isn't a drug that's been in the public domain, but I also don't think they've been developed privately at this point either, tells you that it's not easy. But I've always viewed that our position has always been to identify the biology. Okay. I'm not really interested in developing a sideline and a company to develop molecules for something that's hard to target. Sure. I'm more inclined as a scientist to provide open source knowledge about what's useful to target and then work with that biology and then it's open for other people to pursue. Okay. Knowing what to work with is the first step. The second thing is phenotyping patients and targeting therapy. That's not necessarily my idea. That's an th idea that's been brought to bear by several groups, notably at Johns Hopkins and Harvard and Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. But that is to say that there was an old idea that's been around for a long time that every sleep apnea patient's the same. Mm. Well, that thinking is because they all have, at the end result, they all have the same phenotype, meaning they all have obstruction in the same way as each other. But how an individual gets to that point is not the same for individual A or individual B. And that really is a big breakthrough that's only a few years um, happened. So... There's only a subset of people that benefit from certain, say, non-drug treatments, certain devices that move the jaw forward, etc. There are certain people that would benefit from surgery. There are certain people who theoretically would benefit from drug treatments. But not everybody would benefit. There are certain people who would benefit from one, but not the other. Sure. So any trials have to really identify that. Hey, everyone. Anton and Swapna here. We've been hearing about obstructive sleep apnea and other sleep disorders, which often results in sleep deprivation. This is not an uncommon experience among those managing a sleep disorder, but also is an experience that is common to people who aren't managing a diagnosed sleep disorder. So we set out to talk to graduate students, undergrads, student athletes, and faculty members around campus to learn more about their experience with sleep deprivation. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm Jim Blackwood. I'm going to UFT right now, uh, third year undergrad, and I'm in neuroscience and physiology. So just pursuing that right now. Um, hopefully, grad school or med school is in the near future. So cool, cool. All right. Do you remember the last time you had a good night's sleep? I'll be completely honest with you. I think it was about two weeks ago, um, way before midterms. Way, way before midterms. And um, I think it was just through a combination of studying and midterms as to why I was not having good sleep. It was about, I'd say on average, five hours of sleep around that time. But about two weeks ago, I'd say I had like a good, decent nine hours. So, Hi, I'm uh, Jason. I'm the Associate Chair for Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Physics. Thank you for joining us. Do you remember the last time you had a good night's sleep? I mean, my definition of a good night's sleep is pretty much anything over six hours, really. <laughs> and so if I'm you know, in bed by 11.30 and then up around 6, 6.30, then it's all good. So my name is Shauna Solomon-Krakis. I'm a clinical psychology student at UTSE. So I think a lot of grad students would argue that seven to eight hours of sleep is a lot. How do you manage to strike a balance between enough sleep, completing your work, and having enough time for family and friends? So I had a supervisor once at McGill who told me that his strategy for graduate school was to work as hard as he could from nine to five, and then anything afterwards or anything before was self-care time or time for family, friends, and sleep. Um, and so moving into graduate school, I've tried to the best of my ability to adopt the same strategy. So just having working as much as possible during the day, and then having the evenings and weekends to the best of my ability is self-care time. Um, so that's something I certainly adopted in graduate school, did not do an undergrad. So I definitely think it is a challenge for most students to be able to strike that balance between all those spheres. Uh, in my case personally, it has been the sleep aspect of it. I've tried to incorporate the social aspect as well as the academic aspect of things into it. But as a result, I don't really get time for myself. Um, coming home at night is usually late nights for me. So as a result, I try to find that downtime and I kind of extend that downtime well into the late hours of the night. My sleep does suffer, so. Can you remember, though, a time when a lack of sleep affected your ability to think or to learn or to perform? Yeah, I've, I think it's, it's a feeling like there's sort of a, like a haze or something in front of me all day, and I can feel it in my head, and I just know that I haven't had enough sleep, and I'm not, not working at, at my top efficiency. It's, it's, it's not fun. I just wrote a recent midterm last week, and 
It was at 10 o'clock, uh, not necessarily an early time, but not necessarily like an afternoon type of late time. Because I am commuting, though, it did take me about like an hour and a half in the morning with rush hour to get down there. But I didn't have sleep that night, the night before. And as a result, I was studying until about 3.30 in the morning and then fell asleep for about four hours, woke up and shoot, I have to go catch the bus, have to subway all the way down. So in the actual exam, you're not necessarily thinking about the questions in front of you on the page, but you're more thinking about, you know, what can I have for breakfast? Or you're thinking about different things that you can do to kind of alleviate the tiredness that you experience during the actual exam. And as a result, I think your performance does suffer with it. So it falls on you as a person to be able to balance out the right amount of studying with the right amount of sleep for yourself. Because, I mean, and this is just in my program as well for neuroscience, but we learned that memory consolidation happens when you do sleep. And that's an important part of being able to actually function well and perform and do things you need to do in an academic setting. So, I think in undergrad, I did not have the strategy of setting myself small goals. I just continued to work and work and work. I was the person to study till 2, 3 a.m. in the library. Um, and then the next day was just harder for me to focus. And so monitoring that and learning about that um, and what my body is like with little sleep helped me prepare better for graduate school. So, Abna, what did you think about all that? To be honest, it was reaffirming because I don't get a whole lot of sleep. It's a struggle sometimes. Um, and I'm constantly working on it, figuring out strategies, how I can optimize my sleep. And, you know, talking to, to other students, it seems like it's a common theme. Everyone, you know, is struggling with that sleep. And it's a priority, but it's a priority that fluctuates because you also have other competing priorities. It was reaffirming. I was surprised by how many actually were able to fit in like a quality seven eight hours of sleep and did state that you know what sleep deprivation is not much of an issue for me yeah yeah it was affirming that a lot of them are saying it was a struggle but it was it was hopeful because a lot of them had found strategies that work for them and the variety of strategies were striking um, but also the evolution of just one of the responses really sticks out in my mind and that was one of them was saying that she struggled as an undergrad but then really put in the effort to change that so that she can have the strategies that produce quality sleep, which produce quality productivity um, in her actual work now that she's in graduate school. So she went from struggling a lot and not really being able to find out how to, to get good sleep to being pretty successful at it. So, I mean, there's hope for all of us. I want to get into the other area of focus you have in the lab, and that's the circuits that are generating sleep and wakefulness. And this is a topic that I'm most fascinated by. Oftentimes when we're studying this in class, we're always told about you know sleep centers and wake centers. And until recently, there's been more parts of the brain that have been associated with promoting sleep. For a long time, it was just the one part in the hypothalamus called the ventral lateral preoptic area. So one of the main concerns I've always had was this doesn't really address certain things about sleep, like sleep inertia, and why when we lesion this part of the brain, sleep still recurs and still continues, and also parasomnias such as sleepwalking. So what do you make of that, and why is there this emphasis on this localized like sleep center stance, or do you think this has evolved over time? Yeah, I don't think there is a focus on sleep centers anymore. Okay. So that's really gone by the by. So the, the whole idea of wake centers, sleep centers, in fact, centers of anything doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. There are most behaviors like that are coordinated by distributed networks. Yeah. And when they all work together, you get the state in question. Okay. If you have a group of cells which are producing non-dreaming sleep or dreaming sleep, but there are still residual activity of other cells that produce another state, you get what's called dissociated states. Okay. You can get what we call parasomnias, abnormal behaviors that are normally present in another state which are present in a different one. Okay. And they could be sleep talking, somniloquy, sleep walking, somnambulism. Those are non-rapid eye movement sleep parasomnias. So in those cases, the brain is exhibiting behaviors that you would normally associate with wakefulness, like talking or moving around. Sometimes people have complex behaviors in such events. But it, I think what's most interesting, so that's the clinical side of things, which is interesting enough. But So normally the whole brain coordinates such that you get whole brain sleep. But really that kind of obscures the fact that what the brain is doing most naturally, and not just us but other animal species too, that sleep is a local phenomenon. The more a bit of the brain has been awake, the more likely it is to be asleep, rewire itself to kind of incorporate that activity into its wiring diagram. 
But it's really inefficient from both an evolutionary perspective and as well as a functional perspective to have bits of the brain falling asleep at different times, mm -hmm. depending on how much they've been used. So what has evolved is a system to basically bring it all together to happen at the same time. Okay. And that's what these areas of the brain you're talking about, the ventrolateral preoptic area, are probably doing. I see. That's why you can sleep without it. For sure. Well, then let's switch to mechanisms of anesthesia because that's something mm -hmm. we're also interested in. But from what I understand and from what we've talked about, the anesthetic agents that are used act on the same circuits that produce sleep. What I want to really know is what's the consensus at this point between the difference between sleep, normal sleep or mm -hmm. natural sleep and anesthesia. And to take that even further, after alcohol or using a sleeping pill, mm -hmm. how does that differ from naturalistic sleep? Okay, so let's take the drug element secondary. Yeah. So maybe ask that again if I forget that. Yeah, the, for the, sure. What you <laughs> so if you go to ever have an anesthetic procedure, which I've had, I remember it very vividly, up until they give the drug, <laughs> which is interesting because there is a temporal domain to sleep. You know, really, you have an impression of how long you've been asleep. Mm. If you ever have a general anesthesia, you're basically conscious and then it's black and then it's, it's almost true. instantaneous uh -huh. and there's a period of time in between there's no recollection whatsoever <laughs> so it's a fascinating state and Leah Mesbaoski who uh, and Kevin Grace did the sleep work but and Leah Mesbaoski was the graduate student working with anesthesia and we were really interested in the fact that when an, when Anesthes says I'm going to put you to sleep what does that mean what does it mean exactly because it's not sleep yeah the emerging idea in the field is that when these drugs are given, the receptors they target are in many, not always for every general anesthetic, for most of them though, they target the same receptors that evolution by natural selection has put in place to put us to sleep. And it just hijacks that system. Mm -hmm. But the work of Leah was really novel and it showed or it provided insight into how the progression into anesthesia might take place. So initially it hijacks those systems, but then it produces an abnormal set of activities which are different than sleep. You basically don't want to wake up from an anesthetic procedure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I've read some books on what life was like before the discovery of general anesthetics, and it was horrible yeah. for any, even the most minor medical procedures was horrific. And really, it's why anesthesia, general anesthetics, have been touted as one of the top 10 medical breakthroughs. We should do a segment on this. <laughs> general anesthesia is a fascinating subject, yeah. really is. Yeah. The idea that these general anesthetics, in large part, hijack the systems that promote natural sleep is interesting. But they do something else which is abnormal. So normally sleep is tightly regulated. There's areas of the brain that are specifically recruited in sleep. So sleep is not a state of inactivity. That's another thing to quash as a, an idea. It's a highly activated state. The brain communicates with different regions, rewires itself. Now when anesthetics come on board, it's a different ballgame because yeah. those anesthetics act everywhere and indiscriminately. Okay. So there are other receptors activated that have nothing to do with the sleep process. They're activated too because there's more than just the unconsciousness you want. You want the lack of mobility and all that kind mm -hmm. of thing. But the other thing that it produces, it alters the brain waves. There are distinct brain waves which are signatures of sleep and they're different with anesthesia. So anesthesia is not the same as sleep, but that's why the brain states that you produce with general anesthetics, sleeping pills, and ethanol basically disrupt the normal brainwave activity, which in essence is the vehicle by which the brain shunts around its information and rewires itself. So none of those things will ever be substitutes, even the best sleeping pills will ever be substitutes for the normal state of sleep is and therefore what it does. Hey guys, it's Anton and Swapna again. Did you know that the earliest recorded attempts to produce states of anesthesia can be dated back to over 5,000 years ago? As you can imagine, these attempts were crude in nature. For centuries, various techniques have been employed in an attempt to subside surgical pain. For example, altering levels of consciousness through hypnosis was performed to induce a psychological state of anesthesia. From a pharmacological standpoint, the best we had to offer up until the late 18th centuries were opiates and alcohol, but that was really about it. This all began to change in the late 18th century after the discovery of nitrous oxide. British chemist Humphrey Davy decided to experiment with this mysterious gas on himself and to his surprise found that nitrous oxide made him laugh, therefore coining it laughing gas. To this very day, laughing gas continues to be used as an anesthetic 
And I'm sure even you have been exposed to laughing gas at one point or another at your dentist. Yeah, I know. I definitely have. So anesthesia has been a boon for patients undergoing medical procedures and for their clinicians, too. The field of anesthesia as a whole has come a really long way. There are many different kinds of drugs that can be used, and there are different kinds of anesthesia, including topical anesthesia, regional, and general anesthesia. But really, there still are many challenges faced by patients undergoing anesthesia. We spoke with a patient who shared his own experience. Let's hear from him. When I was 17 years old, I had my first spinal surgery to repair PARS defect. And shortly after coming out of general anesthesia, you have the sense of sort of as if you were just born. They wheel you away into the, into the room where that feeling lasts, I would say, up to even 8 to 10 hours into the night. And you have the sense that you sort of just arrived there and you have no idea where you came from. So time sort of stops and you have really no sense of it. And why was that a problem for you? So I felt a severe cognitive dissonance, and the issue was is I didn't really register what had just happened. I didn't register the spinal surgery, which led to sort of a bizarre motivation later that night to just sort of get up and walk away from the bed. And in the process of that, I ripped out a oxygen in my nose, an IV in either hand, and a blood pressure monitor, and a pulse monitor on my finger. Uh, which resulted in IVs just spurting blood everywhere, the machines uh, beeping and calling in the nurses. And the problem was is I really just didn't know what had happened to me, and I had no sense of that, oh, I just had a back surgery and I should just stay in the bed. So it sounds like the cognitive dysfunction really affected your recovery from the process. Yes, I'd agree completely. To explore more about the challenges and the frontiers of what's being done about them, we drop by Dr. Beverly Orser's office. Dr. Orser is professor and chair at the Department of Anesthesia at the University of Toronto, as well as co-director of research at the Department of Anesthesia and co-director at the Perioperative Brain Health Center and staff anesthesiologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Welcome, Dr. Orser. Thank you. So we understand that you've worked with Dr. Horner in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about that collaboration? Uh, Dr. Horner and I, for many years, have had a very uh, fruitful and uh, collaboration. We've uh, shared scientific goals. We've exchanged ideas. We've uh, shared graduate students, and we've produced papers together. Um, There's a lot of similarities in some way between sleep and anesthesia, but they're also very different brain states. But we've learned a great deal from each other and really enjoyed that collaboration. Um, We've been talking about why anesthesia is a great invention that has advanced the practice of medicine to make it safer and a more feasible process for both patients and clinicians alike, but challenges do remain. Um, Can you speak to some of the issues faced in anesthesia today? Sure, and you're absolutely right. It's provided the foundation for our modern surgical era. But there are challenges. Um, each year, over 100, uh, 300 million patients undergo anesthesia worldwide. And the good news is, is because of increased monitoring and knowledge about some of the adverse effects, the vast majority of those patients survive their surgery and are discharged home. That's the good news. What we're beginning to appreciate, though, is that many of these patients, especially the older adult patients, are developing deficits that are unrelated to the reason they came and sought our help in the first place, and in particular, cognitive deficits. Given the large number of patients that are undergoing anesthesia, and that number will likely increase, it's an important problem that we we need to understand. We also recognize that those cognitive deficits are associated with some poor long-term outcomes, loss of independence, inability to return to work, inability, for example, perhaps to understand instructions. And, and so it's, it's really important that we understand and inform our patients first that this might be a concern so they can develop the strategies to work around a transient deficit, but also that we understand the etiology or the cause of this so we can prevent it from happening. That's really interesting. And just to uh, follow up on the cognitive deficit aspect of what you're just talking about, you have a recent and exciting patent uh, for a class of drugs that addresses one of these issues, particularly memory impairment following general anesthesia. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey from discovery to today? Right, thank you. Well, it's been a really interesting journey, and it's actually been over 20 years uh, from when we first identified a population of receptors 
that were co contributing to the desired memory loss. But what we were f surprised to find is that after the anesthetics were eliminated, that those same receptor populations were contributing to some of the adverse effects. Um, we call them memory blocking receptors, and we want memory block during anesthesia. And the drugs were interacting with these receptors and doing their job, which is great. But what we found was once the drugs were eliminated, there was an overactivity of these receptors, and they were causing subtle cognitive deficits, the types of deficits we see in our patients. And we identified a, a class of drugs that inhibits these memory-blocking receptors, and at least in animal models, returns function to baseline. And so the patent is a repurposing patent for a class of drugs that that reduces the function of our memory blocking receptors. It's a double negative, so it's a little, but we do see improvement in cognitive performance um, in animals treated with this class of drugs. So what we hope is that we've got one of the first pharmacological approaches to reversing the cognitive impairment that we see in our patients after surgery. Well, that sounds like a lot of exciting stuff for us to look forward to in the field of anesthesia. And we also really want to thank you for joining us, Dr. Orser. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you for uh, sharing our science with the Canadians. Thank you. And uh, now back to Jabir and Dr. Richard Horner in the interview. I actually got some questions from Dr. Kevin Grace. Did you really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I told him that I was sitting down with you. I hit him up and said, hey, you want to ask you know, mm -hmm. your former supervisor some questions, if you don't mind? <laughs> so here's this question. I want to make sure I read it right. The history of science is filled with great discoveries by people guided only by their own creative impulses. Today, the practical reality of science funding often doesn't allow a scientist to pursue every good idea. That springs to mind. In the field of sleep, what is the idea question that you would be most excited to pursue but we'll probably never have the opportunity to study. So I've had a lot of good conversations with Kevin. I think in that realm, I think the whole idea that sleep is a mystery is an utter nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's fair to say that a lot of physiology happens in sleep, but to say that just because of that, we don't know what sleep is, I just think is lazy science, or mm -hmm. it's perpetuating a myth to make one think that one's working in an area that's so enigmatic. I think sleep is a very simple process, and that is the process of brain rewiring based upon experience because it's so powerful in evolution. The thing that makes it more interesting, if you read the work of Daniel Dennett, is that that can provide a boost, an accelerator for evolution of species, and I think the humankind is a very good example of that. So the idea that sleep is a process that boosts fitness but the second thing is, which we don't often give thought to, is that it's labile. It's not an absolute requirement. There's a trade-off. Mm -hmm. Animals will sleep because they get the benefit of it, but not every animal sleeps in the same way. But they would get the same effect, same boost from evolution. So I'd like to test that idea. I'd like to do an experiment that has its roots in being applicable to every species. It doesn't really matter what one would study. But to provide some challenge from the point of view of fitness, in which case the choice of not sleeping would be the better one to survive. And looking at the impacts on flexibility of behavior, fitness, and just see what contribution sleep as a process and the rewiring phenomenon, which mm -hmm. I talk about a lot in my book, is a process that allows organisms to navigate their fitness landscape, but it's a labile phenomenon. Just for our listeners, can you define what you mean by fitness landscape? Fitness yeah, so landscape. if you imagine a mountainous landscape, let's look at Everest, mm -hmm. right? And normally we ascribe in such a mountainous landscape that the top is in the death zone. But in a fitness landscape, let's just view it differently. The top is the best, the valleys are death. Death valley and the peaks are peak fitness. So if you have organisms, the position of an organism on a fitness landscape, which is multidimensional, but let's consider, say, a pair of genes. Genes for a behavior A and B, and there is some level of fitness that's determined by those genes. So you could be in the middle of that landscape, so your, your fate is really not certain, because mm -hmm. you're close to the bottom as you are to Death Valley. But let's say you're in Death Valley, your chance of of survival as a species are slim and if you're at the top they're more secure probabilistically mm -hmm. but that's fixed but if you have the capacity to rewire right 
where you can live and learn. Yeah. You can learn from your kin. You can learn from what you see, all the things that are available in, in life. Mm. So at that point, the position on the fitness landscape is not fixed. Mm-hmm. So that's what plasticity does. But the whole idea of plasticity, you have a genome that determines behavior, that determines experience, that creates some flexible phenotype, natural selection sees that, it's written into the genes. That's once-in-a-lifetime cycle. Mm-hmm. It's not very inefficient. So to have plasticity operating on a daily basis allows organisms to move around their fitness landscape. And the fact that sleep has been discovered by animals of all walks of life as a means to boost plasticity, to boost connections that are useful, build new connections, get rid of the ones that downscale, the ones that are less useful, allows organisms, whoever they are, to hone in on strategies that work. So now they can move around and they can move upwards. Yes. So okay. that's the beauty of the rewiring phenomenon. And that's why I would argue, and the evidence I think is so strong, that sleep exists because it simply boosts that process. Mm-hmm. That's why animals, even if they live in dangerous environments, forsake. They get strategies that will allow them to sleep a little bit because that little bit makes them more fit. Mm-hmm. For sure. Just a few questions to shift gears and talk about your book, mm-hmm. uh, The Universal Pastime, Sleep and Rest Explained. I wasn't going to come and interview you and have a conversation with you without reading it. <laughs> but I want to ask a few questions before getting into some specifics about your theories. And you did talk about the rewiring phenomenon that mm-hmm. I want to talk about a bit more. But if we can go back to when you first started writing the book, mm-hmm. what did it feel like to be you then? How did it fit into your life? You know, you were running a lab at that time. Um, I've always had media requests to do, and I really, I just wasn't comfortable at that point. I wouldn't say I'm that comfortable now either, but I, I took it on as because I just felt there was so much that is known about sleep, and I was a bit tired of hearing there was so much we didn't know because I just mm-hmm. felt that that was perpetuating a myth that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So when I started to write the book, it was more that I, I just wanted to solidify some ideas. I really perhaps wasn't even thinking. There was no roadmap about how it would be, but I knew what I had to do was read a lot about evolution, more neuroscience outside my field. As a research scientist, it's not an easy thing, obviously, because you always got to be competitive for grants mm-hmm. to sustain your research. But it keeps you narrowly focused, which I've always not really enjoyed. And so I purposefully set aside my evenings to read about things that had always interested me but I wanted to learn about philosophy evolution wider aspects of neuroscience that I would never write about in my academic life so actually I found that really interesting and I enjoyed it Mm -hmm. I allowed myself to read material that I had previously read when I was younger but I felt compelled because of my academic life which is competitive for grants that I just didn't allow myself so Mm -hmm. that aspect was fantastic and you mentioned the theory of sleep. I mean, I don't propose a theory. Yeah. I just propose that we know exactly what sleep does. So let's not make it too complicated, Fair. number one. And it f- the simplicity of it fits with everything. So the whole the, the, there, are, there, are, there are certain outcomes that come from the basically sorting out of ideas is really mm-hmm. what it is. Mm-hmm. And placing them on a proper, in my view anyway, a reasonable and appropriate structure that works and so there's an array of ideas of what sleep does with respect to energy conservation adaptive inactivity if you hide away you'll it's adaptive because you'll survive Mm -hmm. those things work but they don't sit at the root explanation and the root explanation is simply plasticity yeah and i love that because what you did in the beginning especially in the fourth chapter is you went through all these conservation theory this inactivity but your main premise was you, you have to look across all living things it has to apply to everything yeah, it has to apply to everything and i find that very interesting because oftentimes we don't look at a phenomena that's common to all of us and look at it from every living thing it's like okay this happens in humans this happens in animals sometimes i guess it makes sense but i think what i really liked about reading that was you went and described all these different views but then you went, oh, but this is the root explanation. But it's all of those things. Yeah. Those things happen. These other explanations yeah. exist, and they're appropriate in certain circumstances. What the field was stuck with, yeah. any exceptions to a particular thing was like brushed under the scientific uh-huh. carpet. You can't do that. Yeah. The phenomenon of schooling in fish, the ideas of 
group sleep. Yeah, the unihemispheric sleep. Yeah, and half-brain sleep as well, and the lack of dreaming sleep in whales. You can't just ignore them. (laughs) They have to fit. Any explanation has to fit when it's pushed to its limits. Mm -hmm. Even more recent findings that jellyfish sleep yet don't have an organized brain. Yeah. There's no conflict with the discussions in the book whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. And I emphasize, it's not as if the sleep field is tainted by, you know, one theory, new theory, this theory, that theory. The book is not like that. It doesn't come up with a new theory. It just says these facts can be explained by one simple thing. Yeah. And it's simple. Yeah. In fact, it's so simple, it's been ignored. Yeah. And that's plasticity. But that's plasticity. But I think the other thing that if I would argue, and if you don't mind me saying, that puts it in perspective, is that it's not enough to say plasticity is the reason why sleep exists, because it doesn't push the envelope. Why? What about biology? What does natural selection see? What can it act upon? And that's the value of putting those ideas in the realm, for example, of the arguments of Daniel Dennett. Mm -hmm. Because when you apply those ideas and say, okay, well, what about it? Why would organisms hone in on this? Mm -hmm. Just as a process through evolution by natural selection is because it's so powerful, because it boosts their fitness and allows them to move around the fitness landscape. But the implications of that, which I cover in Chapter 7, would be working with this. What does it mean with respect to human potential and the evolution of intelligence, Mm -hmm. which, again, is, is not plucked out of thin air. It's grounded on a solid literature that exists. Well, I just wanted to kind of stretch out the whole plasticity thing a bit more because Mm -hmm. you do talk about in the book that sleep is the optimal condition for this rewiring to occur. But what makes it the optimal condition? Why can't, you know, this just happen during wakefulness? Well, it it does happen in wakefulness. So what is about sleep that, why is that the optimal condition? There's two reasons. One, if you're ever in a busy environment, say you go to a party, you meet someone and someone says their name and you want to remember it and then you off you go and, or someone says something at the yeah. same time as you hear and then you can't remember it. Everyone has that phenomenon. So outside influences can destabilize circuits yeah. or make them less optimal. That's one thing. But with the, any idea that we can not learn when we're awake is nonsense. Of course we can. Yeah. Right, The value of the sleep phase, particularly in more complex organisms when we get to mammals, is that the brain replays information, but now it does it internally. So instead of having one shot of learning and applying yourself to a set of things you might want to learn implicitly, let alone all the things we learn subconsciously, those circumstances are replayed. Mm in the sleep phase. Not only are they replayed, they're replayed over and over and over and over and over again. So that constant replay at an accelerated rate, shifting information from a short-term store, say the hippocampus, to a long-term store, areas of the cortex, allows information to be shunted around, number one, but because it's replayed over and over and over again, certain connections associated with certain things are strengthened laid down, kept active. Mm -hmm. So areas that are constantly used remain active. Areas of new areas are constantly replayed, allowing us to learn new things. And the fact that these things are replayed and replayed at an accelerated rate is basically boosting a process that did exist in wakefulness, but now it can happen undisturbed over and over again and really consolidating the laying down of circuits that have a relevance to the experience we had in wakefulness. Mm-hmm. But the power of this is not just for the good. The experiences of wakefulness may have been negative. They're laid down too. Yeah. It's the basis of our environment having an imprint on our brain for better or for worse, mm-hmm. whether it's a good experience or, or bad. bad experiences, traumas, bad experiences, good experiences, they're all laid down. Mm-hmm. This is part of the process by which our brains from birth to death incorporate our experience. And it's not always good. You sound like you have a second book in you. Do you have a second book in you? Uh, I do, but it's probably not along the lines you're thinking of. It's actually more to the point that there's actually a lot of time constraints stopping me uh, pursuing it. But it's more taking issues which are of relevance, be it... Why am I a night owl and what can I do about it if I want to be a more, you know, it's pinning the biology on that sort of thing. But the idea that I would pursue is doing very short chapters of a thousand words each, tackling a question. When I was young, I, another book I read that was very influential, which recommended, I had a great biology high school teacher, mm. phenomenal 
biology high school, Mr. Brilevsky, I remember him very what was, well. What was phenomenal about him? He did two things which I remember very well. One of them was he encourages us to read the New Scientist magazine, which I still have a subscription to. The second one, he suggested several books, one of which is Why Big Fierce Animals Are Rare. And so this book had a question. Each chapter was a question. Why are big fierce animals rare? Mm. Why is the sea blue? Just things that are of interest in biology. So each question tackled something like that. And I would like to perhaps address specific questions which are relevant not all medical but so for example there's a program called the frequent flyer program that is terrible it's used by certain countries to technically follow the geneva convention for allowing sleep but by disrupting sleep it's a means of coercing people it's a form of torture yeah so you know getting into not just the science of why that works but how horrific it is. So taking examples in life, yeah, the issues of sleep pods, are they good? Are they not good? Why do we need them? So, you know, certain issues with respect to sleep, cognition, body clocks, but putting them in a perspective that are societally relevant, but based in biology. That's my thought process. Well, I'm looking forward to that when that comes out. I think that brings us to the end of this conversation. You have our listeners' ears. Is there any kind of message you want to put out there for them? Any Anything that you would want them to know? I would just say uh, be curious, you know, and explore. If something interests you, whether it's science, literature, art, pursue it. Just stay interested because everything's related to everything else. Well, there you have it. Thanks again for your time, Richard. My Appreciate pleasure. It. My pleasure. I really hope you like what you heard. You can stay in touch with Dr. Honer on Twitter at SleepScienceRH. And be sure to pick up his book. Again, that's The Universal Pastime, Sleep and Rest Explained, on Amazon by using the affiliate link on our website. Now for a preview of episode 34 with health professions education scientist, Dr. Ryan Bridges. I asked Ryan what goes into building a program of applied research. Here he is describing one of the five components. It's key, I think, for everyone out there to think about if you are going to be working in an applied field, yes, it's important to work with the frontline people and professionals, but also who are the people who are helping set the mandates, having them on board to advise on the realities of their lives and the pressures and and factors to consider from their perspective, super important. And the story and implication behind one of his tweets. It's important for us to remember what others have done and to recognize I'm probably not entirely unique. I'm tweaking on an idea rather than creating an idea. But Mm -hmm. don't forget that that's the reality rather than you're always innovating. And we feel pressures to try to represent ourselves as new and novel. All right. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I'm not really interested in developing a sideline and a company to develop molecules for something that's hard to target. I'm more inclined as a scientist to provide open source knowledge about what's useful to target and then work with that biology and then it's open for other people to pursue.